0: So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the law protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, for this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing mer- nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now complete, completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there.
1: So this is what happened when God entered the world he made. As it says in the opening chapters of John's Gospel, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so we killed him like a criminal. This is what happened when God came into the world. Not that we could substantiate any claims that he had done anything wrong, ever. The closest that um, people came to that was accusing him of breaking God's law by working on the Sabbath. But the work that they were objecting to was his healing of a woman who had been afflicted for 18 years with terrible and embarrassing back pain. The stupidity and lovelessness of that objection was so plain for everyone to see. In fact, that was one of the times when Jesus did actually get angry. But it was a pure, holy, and justified anger at the priority of religion over love. But in the end, when he asked, can any of you prove me guilty of sin, the silence was telling. No one ever could. Remember how Pilate found no charge against him three times over. Innocent, 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 He was the one truly good and perfectly loving person who has ever lived. And in in the end, their response was, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Get God out of here. That is what sinful humanity does with God. But what our final reading impresses on us is that the scene of man's darkest moment was the place of God's greatest victory. Through this sham of a trial, with its total miscarriage of justice, and through the brutal, shameful, tortuous death of the innocent Son of God... The great plan of God was accomplished. That's why in verse 30, Jesus says with his final breath, the amazing words, It is finished. It is finished. It's finished. The plan that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had conceived before the beginning of time to save sinners. It was finished. On that great and terrible day, the just sentence for the sins of the world fell upon a willing saviour. With that great tidal wave of judgment coming on its way, Jesus stepped in and took the full force of it himself. The Son of God drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. After the way he was treated, Jesus could easily have said, I'm not doing this. Get them out of here, not me. But instead he said, no, I'm going through with it. I'm going to bring them back. Whatever the cost, I'm bringing sinners home. So there as Jesus died, willingly, it was mission accomplished. And the reading we've just heard impresses on us again and again that this was God's plan. That's why it repeats over and over again, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. God had planned this down to the very details, even to the minutiae of how Jesus' clothing would be handled by those who crucified him. Because God, in his genius, had revealed all this beforehand in cryptic ways, through the prophetic experiences and visions of prophets over the course of thousands of years. Not that any of those who fulfilled these prophecies were at all conscious of what they were doing But guiding and steering even the evil schemes of sinners and even Satan to his own ends, God brought his great plan of salvation to completion. It is finished. God's great plan to bring sinners home is finished. And this is how he did it. With the innocent Son of God willingly going to your cross and my cross. And along the way, he revealed that he is a a God of love beyond all imagining. This is our God. But there's one other thing that our last reading impresses on us, and that's the different responses to Jesus, and three of them stand out to me. The first is to reject him like the Jewish leaders. Um, So in verse 21 they say, he is not the king of the Jews. He's not the king. He simply claimed to be. That's all Jesus was to them, a man who made false claims on us. A wannabe king, but he's certainly not going to be my king. How stubborn was their proud religious spirit. How fragile were their egos, that they became blinded to who Jesus really was. Unable to see the most extravagant display of love since the beginning of the world that was right there before their eyes. What a tragedy that they so hardened their hearts. The second response is to ignore him like the Roman soldiers. Um, This one is in a sense more tragic Again, the saviour of the world was right there, just a few metres from them, within arm's reach. But all they could think of was how big their share of his clothing was going to be. Just like people who think that what Christmas is all about is the Boxing Day sales, the bargains. Their minds were so caught up with trivialities, with the here and now, that they failed to see that God himself was in their midst, dying to save them. And, of course, both of these responses, so different in many ways, are actually two ways of making the same ultimate decision. They're two ways of saying, I don't need a saviour, not interested. But according to Jesus, that is a dire decision to make because it means God's wrath remains. The consequences of your sin will remain yours to bear for anyone who says, I don't need a saviour. But then there is the third response, to love him like those four faithful women who stood at the foot of the cross, and to worship him like Joseph and Nicodemus, the men who buried him. And we learn that their response was the polar opposite of the the other ones through a little detail there in verse 39. That detail that they buried him with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is it was an absolutely lavish amount of spices. It was the kind that you would usually save for a royal burial, not the burial of a criminal. So while Jesus died like a criminal, he was buried like a king. Buried like a king by those who saw who he really is. Those who see him for who he really is, who understand that Jesus is the son of God and that he died for us on that cross. Those of us who get that worship him and love him. They honor him extravagantly with their wealth, with all they are, with all they have. This is the response that says, this is my saviour, and I will worship him. I asked earlier, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, on Good Friday, the day in human history when that question was never more justified, the answer is that it happened so that bad people could be saved. On that day, the worst possible thing happened to the best of all people, so that the worst possible thing might not happen to us instead. So that your sin and my sin need no longer be counted against us. So that the great tidal wave of God's judgment need no, fall no, no longer on us. So that we can be saved from wrath and ruin, from desolation and destruction. And so that God can give us the best and most glorious future that he can imagine. As Peter wrote in one of his letters, Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. To bring us to God. This is why Jesus willingly suffered death and hell on that cross. To bring us back to God. And at the same time to reveal the greatness and the love and the glory of God. He did it so that we could become children of God, so that we could be welcomed forever into his love and glory, welcomed into the everlasting joys of God's eternal kingdom, welcomed into an eternity where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's a promise. Welcomed into a world where the highest experiences of this life would not even be worthy of mention because they would feel so weak and insubstantial. Welcomed into the very life of God. This is what John's gospel talks about again and again and again. The Father and the Son will come and make their home with us and in us. Welcomed into the life of God himself. The kind of life that would need a 400,000 volt power station to sustain it. Of course, if we plugged ourselves into 400,000 volts, our heads would pop off now. But then we'll need it to sustain the kind of life that's ahead of us. The welcome into God's presence, into the throne room of the ever living and ever loving God, into an experience of love and power and life that is so great that no human language, not even the loftiest poetry or the greatest songs could ever express. This is what Christ accomplished for us on that cross, at unspeakable cost to himself. This is the hope that he won for us. It is finished. It's done. For anyone who believes in him today, he's won all of that for you. And so we respond with love and worship. Of course we do. As the great hymn puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's here at the cross where our love begins, where love for God is born and gets fanned into flame again and again and again. It's here where only hearts of stone refuse to be awakened Who can be unmoved by what Christ did for us on that cross? Who can look upon the Saviour who loved us to the point of death and hell and not have their heart melt within them? If this love doesn't break your heart, nothing will. For as Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did. Friends who began as his enemies. And what about a church? A church? That is wanting very intentionally to grow in love for God this year, to learn what it means to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength well keeping the cross before us is going to be crucial keeping near the cross never letting the cross be removed from our sight as John Stott once put it the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us And part of that means asking God regularly to show us the depths of our sin. So we become more and more aware of how much we need the cross, how much we need our saviour. But it's all in the service of love. The love who laid down his life for us. The love that says, it is finished. Your hope is secure. Do you see that man dying on the cross for your sins? Do you see the king of love? This is your God.